From Editor-at-Large, this is Business of Home. I'm your host, Dennis Scully. Every week, I'll be talking to leaders and innovators from all corners of the home industry. I hope you'll join me. Before we start this week's episode, I want to give a special thanks to High Point Market for supporting the Business of Home podcast. Twice a year, tens of thousands of designers and retailers flock to the town of High Point, North Carolina for five days of shopping, networking, and learning. Held in the furniture capital of the world, it is the largest home furnishings trade show, with over 11.5 million square feet by roughly 2,000 exhibitors throughout about 180 buildings. To register for Spring Market April 14th through the 18th, visit highpointmarket.org. And now, on with the show. My guest this week is Christiane Lemieux. Christiane is a design entrepreneur. She is the founder and CEO of The Inside, a direct-to-consumer home furnishings brand. She's also the co-founder of Cloth & Company. Christiane, I wanted to start by asking you about your Canadian heritage. Did you grow up in Canada? And then I am Canadian. You, you, you am. are actually Canadian. I actually yes. am, yes. yes. Okay. I grew up in Ottawa, Canada. Okay. And then I, went to, I got an undergraduate degree in art history. Right. And then I came to the venerable Parsons School of Design. And yes. so that's how I ended up coming to New York and then staying here. Okay. So that's what brought you to the States originally? It is. College. Coming, coming yeah. to Parsons. Yeah. Okay. Going to Parsons, yeah. So you had studied art history mm-hmm. and then decided to get into fashion and apparel? I always wanted to study that, but okay. my parents forced me to get a proper undergraduate degree because they didn't view design as something that had enough gravitas. So okay. you always have to have something to fall back on. She right. says air quotes. <laughs> um, so th- this this that was my something to fall back on. And you know, in retrospect, it, it was a probably a very good move because. Um, I went to an all-girls boarding school, and so dropping mm. me into New York City post right. that would have been really interesting. Yes. So I think it's a good thing that I went to, and I got my undergraduate degree in art history. Right. It also helped me because, you know, learning how to research, learning how to write, learning how to, you know, do all the things that you learn in an undergraduate degree was probably, it is very useful. Yes, um, to be sure. To be sure, yeah. And design school, everybody will tell you, is very intense. And especially in New York, like it's a 24-7 thing. They've got you working all the time. So I also learned, I think, habits uh, in university that I was able to bring with me to Parsons. Well, and I feel like post-Parsons, you you always seem to refer to yourself more as a, a fashion person. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that really grounded you yes. in, in fashion. Yeah. And yes. that sort of influences how you see everything. everything. Mm-hmm. So So tell me about that. Well, I mean, I always, you know, growing up, I always wanted to be a fashion designer. I remember having, you know, W Magazine pinned up all over the, when it used to be that big format all yes, over my, I all, love. Uh, me too, I love yeah. that, they should bring that back, um, all over my bedroom. And and so I did the, I loved art history as well. So I, I did the undergraduate degree and I came to New York um, and the Parsons program is really immersive. So all of a sudden, you know, Donna Karen was my, was my mentor. Um, How for one of my yeah, for one of my school projects, you know, running up and down Seventh Avenue, and I in I had an incredible internship, so I got to intern for uh, Mickey Drexler when he was at the Gap, and I got to intern oh for goodness. Isaac Mizrahi, and I had all these great jobs, um, and so I really became part of the fashion community, and you know, working at the shows and doing everything. So it was it was it was very very immersive, and it's very very much part of New York City. Yes. So you know, it, it it really it really grabs you. Um, and then I got the opportunity to go into home. It was sort of, all of this is like weirdly happenstance because another Canadian girl who was at Parsons with me in the interior design program, her husband bought a home furnishings brand. And all of a sudden he's... he's, he's and, and that was Portico? Yeah, it was Portico. So he was a venture capitalist. He bought a home furnishings brand. He didn't, he sort of, he was like, I have this thing. I don't really know what to do with it. Would you like to take a stab? I was like... Okay, I mean, I, I just graduated. Well, I'm still actually in college. Yes, um, yes. But I will, I will, I'm designing textile, textiles all day long at Parsons. I'll start designing some textiles for you and then some furniture. And so, and so lo and behold, it, you know, this was in the span of a year. It was on the floor. It sold really well. And I was like, wait a second. I can probably do this myself. So, so, so there you go. So how long were you at Portico? Uh, probably 12 months. Okay. Yes. Because that was a that was a very well known brand. Very well known brand. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it was. I mean, I think it was one of the first kind of concept stores, boutique home concept stores. I, agree. I mean, there were you know there were 
that was back in the days of Soho having all of these kind of curated stores. So it was really beautiful. Um, yeah, what a great experience. It was a you. great experience. And the, the greatest experience was because um, the gentleman who bought it was sort of like, you know, he's in, involved in all kinds of other things, real estate. He sort of just pushed me into it, you know, sent me on a plane to Asia sourcing. And this is, you know, this is 10, 12 years ago. Yeah. So there weren't a lot of people. I was by myself. I remember sitting in the back of the plane, like filling out everybody's uh, American immigration cards for everybody on the plane because nobody read English and <laughs> taking down their names. And, um, but I, it, it was great. So I was able to source. And so when I left Portico, um, because I had a little bit of traction, I was able to take that and I used it to create product for, you know, Walmart, Crate and Barrel, a Canadian company called Lawboss, all these different companies um, on a private label basis. And oh. that actually ended up being the venture arm for Dwell Studio. For Dwell Studios, mm -hmm. which you started... In my apartment and grew and sold, yes. Which so, is an, an incredible story. And that was a really remarkable brand. It was, it was, it was crazy. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So you started in your apartment. I started and in my apartment. I say this all the time. I mean, I didn't have any kind of a business background. When I started, I didn't even know what a purchase order was. So this really? was, yeah, this was flying blind, but, um, two degrees I, and you didn't know what a purchase order was. Two degrees, Imagine that. Yeah. And so, uh, and then off I went. So I, I, my first, I, I showed at the ICFF, which is how we launched it. And at the same time, I, you know, started all this private label business. I used the sources that I had from Portico, many of them who had become, you know, over the 12 months become quite friendly with. So they were willing to take a flyer on some of my product. And it was just this crazy thing. You know, it was, there wasn't as much competition. Right. Um, I had these personal relationships. They were willing to, you know, back me in a lot of cases with the product. Right. I mean, they weren't necessarily writing checks left, left, right, and center. There wasn't a, the venture world the way there is, you know, as of like five years ago in our space. Yes. Um, and so that's how I grew it. So I would, you know, bring in containers for Bed Bath & Beyond and I would use that money to grow the Dwell Studio brand. Fantastic. Mm -hmm. So, and what was Dwell Studios' product line originally when you started? So uh, if I remember, you did textile textiles design. Textiles to start. Textiles because, um, as you know, logistics is a huge part of this business and yes. they cannot break. Yes. So I wanted to start, if I was, if I was going to learn the shipping business, it was going to be with something where there wouldn't be damages and returns and things like that. So right. I started with textiles because they were the easiest and, and you know, they come in 100% intact. Right. So you're not, you're not having to deal with returns and things like that. And that, that gets very complicated. Logis the logistics around shipping, furniture, returns, damages. Um, I just didn't want to, that's not where I wanted to start. I wanted right. to learn the business from the ground up. So started with textiles. Okay. And sort of our zeitgeist moment though, was when we decided to, to go get, take the textiles that we designed for adults and shrink them down and make them into baby and start modern baby. And that right. was really when, you know, that's the flywheel. So that was a major turning point for the, for that brand. That was a really major turning point for that brand. Yes. Okay. Because that was it, a big market and that was really catching on at the time. It was really catching on at the time. Um, there was this moment when, you know, sort of high end baby exploded and yes. it happened to be right there. Um, you know, alongside we, we partnered with David Netto who had a really beautiful, a very beautiful, beautiful line. baby yes. brand. And we'd show together and it was, it was, it was a moment. Um, which actually went away after 2008 with many moments. <laughs> yes, um, with many businesses. Many, that many moments. Managed to come um, through. Yes. But from about 2003 to 2008, it was a moment. Right. And so by, by 2008, you were well into case goods and... But yes. Right. So by so I think our, our sort of big moment, our other big moment came in 2007 when we did a collaboration with Target. Okay. So we did Dwell Studio for Target, and we were right. in there for four years. Um, and that's when we really got our feet wet in, in furniture. Mm -hmm. um, and then after four years, I started to worry that if we spent all of our effort on Target, that, that, that the, the customer concentration would be too scary for me. Right. So we did not renew our contract with Target. We then went right into sort of higher end furniture and we started to, to license. So we started to take this kind of base that we'd built um, with the product lines that we were developing and importing and selling. And then we added everything else on top of it. So that was furniture, you know, upholstery case. We did a, a license with Robert Allen on, on fabric. Right, I, I recall mean, we, that. Okay. Yes, yeah. bubble views, lighting. We, we just sort of 
um, built out the entire lifestyle. And then, the, as you say, the financial crisis came, and then yes, deep, deep breath, deep and then, breath, and then and then what did you decide to do with the business after that? So the financial crisis came, and I remember I will never forget it. And I think everybody who's in the consumer products business probably had this moment. We were all standing in the Javits Center at the uh, oh god at, at the, the gift New show. York Now show New York Now show yes, and there was nobody there. Yes. And I remember we all looked at each other. It was it was January of '09, so it wasn't even that long ago when you think about it. Yeah, we all looked at each other and we we're like, oh my god, it's over. Yeah. Um, yeah, and it felt that way. It felt like it really felt that way. And it felt like it felt that way. It's starting to not feel that way now, but it felt that way. Eight for years like, later. Eight years yeah. later. But people said it would be a really protracted uh, recession. Yes. Um, so, yes, it's starting to not feel like that now. But eight years later, the landscape has changed so much. But yes. there we were, all were in January in Javits with no attendees. And so i feel fortunate because at that point we had um we were not just a wholesale company we were also a direct-to-consumer company so we were selling all of our products through our website so we had lots of channels to carry us through okay um and so one of the things we did uh post-recession is we raised a little bit of money and we opened a retail store Okay, so you had that shop down in Soho. So we had the shop on Wooster Street, yes. So when did that open? So that opened in 13. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So 13... No, tw- yeah, 12, 12. Okay, in 12. Because yeah. yeah. 13 was when, was when sold, Wayfair... Yeah, when we okay. sold to Wayfair. So, so tell me how that conversation got started with Wayfair. How, did they approach you? How did that even... Did you, were you familiar with Wayfair at, at the time? They were a customer of ours. Okay. Yes. Uh-huh. Um, okay. So I think it, it all... We got to a place where it was... You know, raise a lot more money, or sell the business. Right. I mean that, and that's the crossroads that most entrepreneurs get to, um, because as we all know, to scale, I mean, it takes money to to make money, and in order to scale, you need a tremendous amount of money, especially with retail. And so, I I sat. I mean, this is this was like existential for me because I was trying to figure out like, what am I going to do here? I built this thing. Um, if we're going to really push it forward and really get into e-commerce, right. I mean, what it's going to take is sort of extraordinary. We're going to need to build a back-end infrastructure and trucking and logistics yes. and yes. all those kinds of things. And like, that is that is not for the faint of heart, believe no. me. Um, and few can pull it off. So and if, well, we all know now. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I, all I can think of is, thank God, because here comes Amazon. Right. Um, yeah. But I, and you know, logistics genius. I was not a logistics genius. I'm, I'm Yet. A, you weren't a logistic genius yet. But, You're right. Right. You're right. Glasses yes. half full. Um, I might be now. Uh, <laughs> so, but so I, I just looked at the business and I looked at the the sort of landscape and where this industry was going. I now, knew I knew in my heart it was going to be e-commerce. Right. Um, and so, I, you know, I wasn't an expert in e-commerce. And and to to continue down the path that I had started, which was the opening of retail stores. The you know the sending of expensive catalogs, the acquisition cost that way, uh, it, was, it was really high. And so we'd see we've all seen others try and do even small regional chains or running stores, sending catalogs, acquiring customers that way, marketing to them all the time is really difficult. Plus, I knew consumer behavior was changing because I had seen it from, I mean, I'm the person who was on the cusp of, I started a traditional business and then got thrown into the digital world. Right. So I, I'd seen both sides of the story. And so I knew, I knew fundamentally that, that e-commerce was going to win this game um, at a, at a, at a, sort of on a, on a big level. Yes. That's okay. not, that being said, I think, you know, there's a whole world that the trade um, addresses that is very different, but it's also a very different, cover, a very different customer. Well, and I want to I want to talk about that because I want to hear your thoughts okay. about the trade. Yes, I mean I, I love the trade business. So, um, so but just generally, I I my gut was that retail was going to go e-commerce. Okay, so and how did a conversation with Wayfair get started? So I started I so I hired an investment bank because you did. yeah I, well I said to myself I'm not going to raise fifty million dollars and then not know how to spend it properly and I'm not losing people's money and I'm not. I'm not going to be one of those people who, you know, who raises money and starts building out offices and going crazy and right, um, as we've seen some others, as do we've seen in some space. do. But yes. That being said, I have this an anecdote to that. But anyway, <laughs> excellent, uh, okay. excellent. Um, so, so uh, I decided not to raise money, and I decided not to. I felt like, uh, like um, almost like it's my child. I've 
I have this child, I've raised this child to the point that I can, and now yes. I need to send him or her off to like the best university in the world. Right. And let okay. them take him or her and run. Because I, this is not, this is not, you know, this is, this is bigger than me. So I hired an investment bank and I gave him a list of about 15 people who I thought would be interesting as an interesting fit. And most of them were people who had sophisticated backends where you could take a brand and stick it on right. an already established shipping, logistics, catalog, you know, e digital marketing, you know, customer acquisition strategy, like right. all of those things. Yeah. Um, and so we landed and we pro probably met the three or four, five best companies in the country. Um, and Wayfair was a great fit. I mean, they had, in our industry, in home, they f absolutely have the most sophisticated uh, back-end logistics, everything. It's tremendous what they've built. And it is tremendous. Yes. yes. Um, and it's only gotten better. I mean, it, it, the leaps and bounds that they've come from 2013 to where they are today, I mean, it's, it's really tr tremendous what they're able to, to execute. Yes. On such scale. On so scale. you had a meaningful conversation, and lo and behold, they buy Dwell Studio. They buy Dwell Studio. For an undisclosed sum. For an undisclosed sum. But you did well, I hope. Yes. Yes. Okay. So, and and then you went to work for Wayfair. They said, and then come. I went, then I went, that was part of the deal. And okay. It, and generally is, when you sell a sure. company, the founder goes along. Um, and was there like a two-year I was supposed to deal? stay for five. You were. Mm -hmm. Okay. And I did not stay for five. You did not. No, okay. I stayed for two and a half. Yes, I remember. Yes. So, yeah. So, and was that, <clears throat> was that difficult? Did nope. Were they unhappy that you were? Uh, no. no. Okay. I think it was, uh, I, I mean, I learned so much while I was there. I had other ideas. Okay. Um, so, okay. so it became an incubator for you. It was an incubator Got for it. me. It was okay. also the most phenomenal education in e-commerce I could possibly get. Yes. I mean, Neeraj, who runs Wayfair, is an extraordinary CEO. So and that and so I've heard that repeatedly from from other Wayfair people and and from from competitors that yes. he's that he's really quite brilliant and yes. and is a great leader. Yes. And, the, and so the, is Steve. They both are. And the team is is highly motivated. Yes. And they've invested on the engineering side as well as on the logistics side. Yes. And, he's incredibly yeah. focused, mm -hmm. and so I think focused leadership is it really pays off. I mean he does not get distracted by outside noise. I mean he knows exactly what he's doing and he executes, which is. Pretty amazing. So you thought it was an amazing operation, but other ideas were bubbling up in your head, seeing what you did every day. Yes, yeah, and also, you know, when a, a company is, is has gone public and they are, you know, they are beholden to shareholders and quarterly yes. uh, earnings and, you know, all of the things that come along with an IPO, it, it's, it's, just, it's just not as flexible. So I, and I am also, I'm a startup person. I mean, then you start to learn what type of an entrepreneur you are. Um, and especially since I now I've sort of done the gamut of things from my apartment all the way to Wayfair um, and back. Yeah. So I like the, I like the, I like the build. Okay. Okay. So yeah. it was, it was a big operation. Then, now when did, when did Wayfair go public? Because they weren't public when they no. bought you. No. They, so went they went public in October of 14. So about... Okay. 15 months after the Dwell Studio acquisition. Okay. Yeah, it was great. It was great. And you were there during that time. I was there. I got to, no we got to ring got the bell options, at the... Yes, got to ring the opening the bell. bell. Yeah. Just got to see Dwell Studio on the side of the New York Stock Exchange. Right. I mean, yeah. I went through an IPO, which was yes. great. An incredible experience. Yes. And that stock has done phenomenally well. It's had an amazing year in 2017. Inc incredible. It's just about to break out to a new all-time high as we speak. Right now. So, yes. Today, my broker called me. Yeah, well, see, there you go. So, <laughs> it's, yes. Uh, so, they've done tremendously well. So, you were there for two and a half years. You said, you know what? I've got some other ideas I, I want to pursue. So, what was on your mind when you were leaving? What was the idea you had at the time? Do you remember? No, oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> of course I remember. Um, I, I think the way we consume furniture is changing. The way we consume brand is changing. And so I was looking at the sort of landscape and and sort of millennials, if you will, shopping habits or and or I would say it's just digital uh, shopping habits and the way things are changing. And it was really fascinating to me that um, people are very, very invested in these new economy brands that are coming up. They don't want, people don't want to see the old. They only want to see the new. And that's really interesting to me because I think I love to create brands. So I saw this vast landscape in front of me. It was like, oh my God, if there's going to be a new, like I would like to be the new. Right. Um, okay. Taking all of the experience that I have, but really creating, uh, creating new brands. And, and 
taking a page from some of my predecessors, right? So when I think about Warby Parker or Everlane or some of these really successful online brands, what they've done is they've really made it uh, consumer centric. So it's really around the experience that a, a customer has online and then all the way through delivery of the product. And so all we want now is more time and less friction. So if you can make any kind of transaction, whether it's you know buying a sofa, decorating your home, uh, thinking about your space, you know, buying your clothes right. with less friction and giving people more time, then I think it's a consumer win. And so that's the, the landscape is shaping up in a completely different way. And so I just wanted to be part of that. And I also think that there's people are looking for a level of customization now that is that is sort of different than just buying something from a store and taking it home. Right. They want to put their stamp on it. Uh, social media plays a large part into what how we think about our spaces. You know, we want it to reflect who we are, to be the backdrop of our lives. It really tells our story. You Has know, that added a lot of pressure on people that they have to I think maintain so. their space because oh, yeah. it's so visible on social media? Well, not only maintain, it's also, if you're in this milieu, not only do you have to maintain it, you actually have to change it yeah. on a sort of near constant basis yes. because that's the storytelling you're doing. Um, and I think, you know, s- smart influencers uh, sort of weave in fashion and cooking and right. food and right. home and all, all those things create on, online lifestyles but there has to be there's this voracious and constant need for uh content yes and so as a as a brand now you're not just creating a product you're not just creating a lifestyle you're actually creating you have to be your own small media outlet you have to be creating constant content which I, I was going to talk about this later, but since you brought this up, I mean, I feel that you have burst onto the scene as this incredible influencer yourself, personally. When I was sort of researching, sitting down to speak to you, I, I couldn't believe the many avenues that I could find Christiane Lemieux, and you've got a massive Instagram following, and you've got YouTube videos, this, this collaboration with Amazon for overhaul. I mean, it, it's spectacular all the things you're doing. I don't even know how you're doing everything that you're doing. <laughs> I marvel. I just, you know what? I've done a terrible job, though, of consolidating. Of what? I can't I, see no, 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 anything no. that you have done a terrible I've done a ter- job of. I've consolidating all of it. Like, there are people that are, because I do okay. it, I do it, my stuff is sort of all out of passion. You know, like, I write okay. for Architectural Digest because I love to write. I write books because I love to write. I, I don't, I haven't really, and I, I think maybe now I probably should because I, I, I do actually think it's important. Um, I haven't really pulled it all together okay. in a kind of packaged analytics way. So right. you don't know right. from my Instagram that I'm on YouTube, that I write books. Yes. I, I, I mean, I, I could do a much better job of that. I, it's never been it's never been a priority for me because I don't think of myself as an influencer. Okay. I think of myself as an entrepreneur. Right. Okay. So, but maybe I should be a, you know, I should start slashing it and be an entrepreneur slash influencer. <laughs> well, I feel like everyone... Slash author. I don't yes. know. Yes. Well, I mean, you, you certainly could be. I mean, it's very clear from your wide body of impressive work <laughs> that, you, that you could be that, and you, and you obviously are without even attempting to be that. So here you are, this massive influencer, without even making that your your focus and, well i'm also i I, I'm, but, I go back to being canadian like i'm it's very hard to be se- like a self-promoter mm. it's just not part of it's not a cultural right. thing yeah so for me that's very hard so okay. i okay. just i try and let the work speak for itself but i think i really need to figure out and and learn lessons from other people that i see who are really great at consolidating it because i think it it's yes. just it's more digestible that way. Well, you definitely have a lot of moving <laughs> pieces right now, but but you're also, uh, I mean, so you are this incredible entrepreneur. So you so you left Wayfair, and what was the first thing that you started after that? The first thing I started was a company called Cloth and Company, okay. and so I I realized you know that digital printing was getting up to speed, and that would be really interesting from a manufacturing perspective. So I called. Uh, a woman named Megan Wecker, who was actually my partner at Target. We had worked together for years oh, at okay. Target, um, and we started Cloth and Company. Right. And then took that and went consumer facing with the inside. Okay. So, yes. and at the time, did you know that Cloth and Company was going to sort of evolve into into that? So, Cloth and Company was originally the textile yes. side. Yes. Yeah. 
Yeah. Okay. So you were able to do custom fabrics, mm -hmm. small custom orders. Small custom orders, yes. Short lead times. Short lead times. Yeah. Well, it's what the fashion industry is doing. Right. So uh, this isn't this isn't new to. Uh, so this whole fast fashion. Yes. Notion. The whole fast fashion notion. Okay. So it's not it's not new to retail. Right. It's actually not new to interiors. Um, it's just that the furniture manufacturers aren't doing it themselves. They're doing it through. Uh, through all the so they're private companies. labeling it and yes. yes so they're doing it through the Robert Allens right. and the Kravitz and every you know doing digital printing that way right so it just shortens lead times um, it allows for more flexibility not as much inventory so I mean that's what everybody's chasing as well what they're really chasing too is I've learned is speed and price so there's this whole matrix going on right now in sort of big furniture sales that are around design, speed, price, and then ease of shipping. So that's why, you know, two weeks ago when Amazon introduced, what was it two weeks ago, four weeks ago when they introduced yes, their, the furniture their, lines. their yeah. furniture lines. Yeah. I mean, that changed the industry. It just did because all of a sudden, you know, Amazon has well-designed furniture lines that they're, that, that they can ship to you in two, in two days. Yes. And, and you felt the entire industry. You felt it. Yes. Wow. Yeah, I know you did feel it. You felt it. You felt it. Get you know, shake up. Yeah, absolutely. And and I'm sure that you had a lot of people reaching out to you. I had a lot of people reaching out to me to say, "Oh my gosh, what does this mean? Where do we go with this?" Even though everyone had it, it had been long in the wind that yes. this was their intention. But once you saw that, yes, you can put this sofa in your one-click order, and it, you'll have it. On and it and it, sh and it ships. Yeah, and it ships. Yeah. For and it ships for free. For free. Yes. 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 So. You know, I, we have had to pivot our business since then because that, that's a big thing to go up against. Absolutely. So, you know, it, it's, it's... Well, and so I saw on, in, the, in the content on your, on your website for the inside, mm -hmm. I saw that you actually address that issue and sort of make it clear that shipping is being worked into the product yes. cost because you have to. You, because you have to. Yes. yes. Yes, and uh, and that's a way that that you that you can do it. But you're still you still have a, a great price. Yes, and but I, you know I I mean as a small company I will never have the shipping leverage that Amazon has. Of course. So you know there are there are hurdles to starting a business now, which weren't necessarily there the first time I started them. But that being said, I mean I think there's room in the market for everything, um, and we can address. We can address the, the, the whole industry with design, which is really where I come from anyway. So we circle back to fashion. Right. It comes back to fashion design and fashion and textiles and layering and, you know, doing all those things that designers want to do. And so giving the, the retail customer the ability to do that, to create that kind of complexity um, and layering in their interiors. So Cloth & Company, we created custom textiles. We were able to ship them quickly. Then you went out and actually got some venture capital money. Yes. To start the inside. Yes. 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 So when was that? So that was uh, in May of this of uh, seventeen. Okay. We soft launched in September. Okay. And we are going. Two thousand and eighteen will be our our post beta year. Okay. And what did your pitch deck say the inside was going to become? Uh, the inside would be fast fashion for home. Fast fashion for mm -hmm. home. And we're starting off with how many SKUs roughly do you have? Uh, we've got, I mean, customizable, a lot. A lot. So okay. a, a couple thousand SKUs. Right. Okay. Because when you choose the chair and then choose the fabric and then choose the legs and then choose the nail heads, when you think about all those the permeations, right. it ends up being a lot. But because it's custom, um, it's doable. So, and you were starting with upholstery, but we are about to launch wallpaper. Um, and then uh, we're looking at case. I'm actually going to um, North Carolina on Monday. Really? Yes. Okay. Um, so really putting together the entire so custom lifestyle. case goods. Custom case goods. Okay. So you can think about finish and hardware and things like that to really build a custom piece of case. And with the same ability to ship as quickly, how quickly are you shipping 
your furniture pieces right now? On? So, yes, two to three weeks, mm-hmm. um, which in the custom world is amazing. Unheard of. Um, in the Amazon world, not so much. Right, <laughs> right. But, and again, on your site, you say it, it, it's two weeks to produce yes. it and a week to ship, yes. and you're going to get it in three weeks, yeah. and that's and it's a custom piece it's a custom of furniture. It's a custom piece of furniture, yes. Which yes. Amazon is not doing. Yes, yet. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I say yes. I qualify it with yet all the time. Yes. Um, okay. Yes, yes. So... So there's also obviously a piece around educating consumers that this is being made for you. This yes. isn't, you know, this isn't um, coming in on a boat and being stored in a warehouse. Right. Um, it's being made for you. And I mean, listen, there's pros and cons to both. Um, and Amazon is able to ship in two weeks because or two days because they they own the inventory and it's sitting in a warehouse. It's a different proposition. Yes. So. So and was there a trade side of this business that you envisioned or did you see this as just a direct-to-consumer business oh i think this is so much a trade okay trade side of the business so what we really want to do um is uh assist the trade in being able to have fast custom because custom is you know trade and and customization are integral and so being able to offer your uh your client custom furniture at a at a great price is a huge advantage to any designer and not only that i mean i sort of envision as the company grows having um what i call micro licenses and so allowing some breakout trade designers to do their own fabric on their own frame or their own finish on case and things like that so to that end we're actually um partnering with home polish on an initiative around really? yeah around some okay. of their best designers and allowing okay. them to do capsule collections and things like that so we really want to be you know part of part of the trade okay. and, and, the tr- and the trade has gotten really interesting because as you know there's a whole new world of digital trade of yes. of just taking that model and blowing it out so that everybody has access to a designer in some way, shape, or form. And so we really want to be part of that conversation because now you can, I mean, now you can virtually have a designer in Austin, Texas, who's doing your apartment in Brooklyn. Yes. Um, you may never meet each other. Right. You may transact everything online, um, but the, the ability to have, you know, to have custom furniture sent, you know, designed here and sent there and without having a sort of onerous logistics scenario is pretty amazing it can all be done online and and maybe you don't even need those purchase orders after all you don't need them yeah yeah so the the whole trade model I mean interesting that you that you talk about partnering with with home polish because the the trade industry the design industry has... oh, we're partnering with everybody by the way I mean we're, okay. we are we are partner agnostic we're talking to Laurel and Wolf we're talking to Havenly we're you we are want... okay so oh, you see the opportunities everywhere everywhere yes Okay, and so there, so there's no issue with exclusivity or no. There's no exclu- no there's okay. no issue with exclusivity. I and I also think that that this is a really interesting time for trade because it used to be that you know it was a a very small addressable market who actually hired an interior designer or interior decorator and had them do their house end to end. Now because of the proliferation of Pinterest and digital magazines and editor at large and all of these different things. You know, people see beautiful spaces all the time, and it's it's it, everybody wants it, regardless of what your budget is. And there's a way for everybody to have it, regardless of what your budget is. And so, you know, the trade ha- has this much bigger sort of you know market segment now than they used to. And I have friends who are doing home polish uh, uh, makeovers or home polish clients, and you know, million dollar townhouses in Brooklyn at the same time right because there is this opportunity for the trade that I don't think there ever has been before so you're talking about sort of seeing some of these digital properties like home polish and Laurel and Wolf as a, as a way to feed designers work that work. they didn't have before well it's also opened an entire market because yeah. now all of a sudden it's not just you know hanging your shingle in your neighborhood it's like if you like my design it doesn't matter where you are in the country or for that matter the world I can probably help execute on some level, the sort of dream space that you're after. So for the inside, you're talking to case goods manufacturers, mm-hmm. you're working on wallpaper, mm-hmm. you mentioned. Um, so really, you see any any of the categories you think you can get into creating customizable product that you can ship relatively I do. quickly? And- mm-hmm. I, think it's, I think that there are incredible 
manufacturers here in the United States who ha- ha- who have never sort of I don't think thought about the kind of digital of it all. Right. But now they're you know they're absolutely willing because they're they're seeing all of this happen, all of this all of this trade design transact online, and so why not be able to supply this in the same way? We're going to take a quick break to remind you to register for High Point Market, where we'll be April 14th through the 18th. This season's market is packed with events and product intros by some of our favorite designers and brands. To register, visit highpointmarket.org. And now, back to the show. So, and does this ultimately lead to, I, I think with the inside now, you, you'll you allow people to come and, and visit your, your space to see the product? Well, yeah. So that, okay. so that leads, so tell me about that. So that leads, so that leads to, I mean, this is like a circuitous thing, but um, I had a book proposal uh, out about the future of the office because oh. I have a thesis that the office is over um, because you know, we're all mobile and you can do anything you want on any platform you want with your right. computer anywhere. Okay. Uh, and, and, and then sort of think about the showrooming of, of product. And so we're building, um, we're calling it the collaborative compound and we're building okay. a showroom slash retail space slash co-working space for designers, um, on, on, at, at our office on Walker and Lafayette. And so we want to create this kind of we call it creative compound. So if if you're in from out of time and you have a client that's uh, in Brooklyn, but you're you can come and work in our space, and we're going to have all the reference materials there, and we have an entire library for design. We'll do design services. Got it. Okay. We have vintage furniture, our furniture. It's all for sale. I mean, so it's just this kind of new new retail. So so how big is this space that you have downtown? It's about three thousand square feet. Okay. Mm-hmm. So temporary offices for people who might be in town. Yeah, I mean not even offices, temporary workspace. Temporary workspace. Yes. Okay. So they can come, they can land in your space for a little while. For a little while, they can. Care. Yeah, they can. You know, we have. They can paint chips or marbles. So I mean, whatever. All the kind of reference materials that you need to execute a project. Um, and then we have all kinds of, you know, we're all we're constantly bringing in things, uh, vintage objects to uh, to to prop out photo shoots. So we have all of that stuff for sale. Plus, we've partnered in the space with Pharaoh and Ball on the paint and okay. the shade store on the draperies and Cherish on some of the vintage products. Really? So yeah, so okay. we're really creating this kind of this kind of new model. Um, and if it works which, you know, hopefully it will, we would probably do the same thing in some of our key markets. In some other major cities. Yeah. Interesting. So is all this open now? Is all this in place or is this sort of a It's happening right now. So it it will be, we're having our launch event on the 26th for the New York Creative Compound. Um, And then we'll open it up on February 1st. Um, Fantastic. Yeah. Okay. So really thinking about, yeah, like the sort of 360 experience of what it means to design something and also purchase something that's designed. So it's interesting you were talking about Warby Parker and you were talking about Everlane and so many of these brands that now have come around from being digital first brands to, oh yes, of course we want a retail space so that people can come and see our product and try on our frames and see that our Everlane cashmere sweaters are really much thicker than you you might think they would be for that price point. Exactly. Right. So this fits in perfectly with what you're saying, that ultimately you'll you'll create these amazing spaces where people can come and work and see your product and see other product. Right. Like our cohorts. Yeah. I think that, I think people want, they want to understand design. They want it to be experiential. They want to actually, you know, choose their fabric and their legs. They can do it digitally. They can do it in person. They can, you know, call up and FaceTime us, and we'll do it. I, I, I just feel like it has to be, it has to be omni-channel in a way, because people still do want to touch and feel a product. And I also think more than ever, people want to feel like they're part of a community and part of a brand. And so we, you know, we have no problem opening up our offices to our brand evangelists and, and designers and trade cohorts and having them come and see what we're doing and we can all learn from each other. Um, yeah. And that's sort of what the future of retail feels like to me. And so who do you think is doing a good job in retail right now? Who's, who's I mean, retail's struggling in, in, in many ways and, and lots of locations are closing and everyone's trying to sort consolidate, of re- regroup right? a, a little. Consolidate, right? There's a lot of consolidation. Yeah. 
But but who's who's coming out of this on the other side and and doing a good job? Well, I think about like I think about we took go back to Warby Parker. I think what, what an amazing story. I mean, yes. they were designer glasses for ninety nine dollars. They really captured a market, but they've also created great retail. I mean, those stores are pa- packed all the time. Yes, they have created this great retail, you know, experiential retail environment where you can go and try on the on the glasses. You can have them sent to you. I mean, I you know I just got glasses there and. They did the whole fitting, and then they came. They came less than two weeks later to my home. It was it was pretty seamless. I I think any time that like any time friction, so conventional friction is taken out of the retail experience, that's when um, brands are going to win because people want all we want is I mean my thesis is all we want is time back, right? Or all we want is to really enjoy doing what we're doing. So the design process, which why the collaborative compound is so interesting to me is because people really love to design their homes. Um, and whether they're working with their interior designer, we've had people come with their designers or not, they want to be part of it. And you know, the often questions are, I love this sofa, what color paint? So to having those materials there and kind of cross-functional and you know, working with other great brands is, is a really nice way to provide design services in a really great environment and also help people get it done. Yeah. So what can the trade companies do? What can the design center housed companies do to catch up with with all of this? How can they transform themselves to to be able to to play in in this market more? That's a really good question. I think a lot of it is 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 figuring out uh, how to work with direct companies to get the product from the manufacturer to the consumer in the least in the most cost effective least sort of frictional way so making sure because you know a beautiful sofa is a beautiful sofa but it's it's less beautiful if it's really hard to get in your house and you have to reschedule it over and over again or if it gets nicked or bang something or it's this is a tough industry i mean it's really tough so trying to create a, a consumer experience that's where there's ease built in i think is is really critical so I, I you know I'm really curious about this proliferation of furniture companies that are sort of as, like assemble in your home yeah so you don't you can get your sofa in three parts and you put it together yes and so you don't have to go through the white glove exercise so I, I think I think there there a lot of the rules have been thrown out the window so what are the new rules we're writing them now if you want to be part of the sort of future of this kind of the whole trade thing you've got to be willing to to, to rewrite some of the rules. So you think some of the trade companies can can partner with some other companies that are working in the space now? Absolutely. And, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I said this. There's such good manufacturing here. Yeah. It's you just have to be open to, to to trying some things out. Yeah. So now you've got another company or brand <laughs> that you're working on. So Lemieux AC. Lemieux AC. That's so, that's some legacy. Um, okay. So I while I was at while I was building Dwell Studio, I got the opportunity to to. Uh, to create a brand in Europe, um, okay. and it was at that in 2011. So since 2011, it's been at the House of Fraser, okay. um, and this year, uh, my collective group of manufacturers is taking it wide. So they're launching it, and it'll be in in it'll be in Europe. So they're launching it in in Paris. Um, so that's going to be at Maison. That's going to be at Maison. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So that is uh, it is an extension of uh, what we did at at House of Fraser. Okay. So it will remain there, and then they're they're allowing us to to sell out. Right. Well, that's fantastic. So will you be in Paris for the I show, will. representing all of this. Yes. And, okay. Yes. That, and, and and that's very exciting. And picking the brains over in Europe because they there there are a, a few commerce companies that have done very well in this category in Europe and have really figured out um, how to get market share. So I'm sort of interested in in what they're doing as well, seeing what the the landscape looks like there. Interesting. And will you be able to, will you have time to get to the Paris flea market? Absolutely. You'll make time for that. <laughs> make time. Okay. Yes, be- because all good trends start at the flea market. Well, and I've heard you say that. Yeah. And so, I mean, you've, you've talked Two about places, how yeah. you, you will find the, the, the next trend is going to be found at the Paris flea market. So tell me about that, because you talked about auction houses and it's flea au- markets being the place to look. Yes, because you know, you know, 
I think it's sort of where the zeitgeist starts. So flea market, for some reason, the Paris flea market, because they, they're able to pull in so many different things from Europe, um, a lot of the trends start there. It's like, you know, brass started there, and then rattan started. Mm-hmm. I mean, it all kind of, it, 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 it somehow bubbles up. And the same thing with the auction houses. I mean, you can pretty well, you know, when I watched uh, when the Memphis movement started to gain traction again, you saw it in the auction house. You saw it at the beginning to come onto the scene and then getting higher and higher prices. And so that's when you know something has has traction and staying power. And the question that I get off often asked is, you know, is this mid-century thing over? And I think the answer is probably no. Um, And it's just it's just kind kind of morphs from. You know, we're seeing a lot more French mid-century, European-inspired mid-century, but still people are drawn to those clean lines. And now they're mixing in things from the 70s and the 80s, but it's still, there's still those 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 sort of quintessential touch points. I mean, the design icons, you know, starting from, when we think about real design icons, starting from kind of arts and crafts, it, it's, not a, it's not a gigantic history. So, yeah. you know, th- those are the things, modern design icons, those are the things that people people still respond to. So with a lot of the fast fashion brands that you've launched, your your target customer, I'm assuming, is a is a millennial customer, is a right, is a younger I mean, what what have you learned about your would be customer? So I've learned a lot about my would be customer. Um, I, I would say millennial, but not on the young side. So okay. Um, kids that are coming out of How old can you be and still be a millennial? Are you? I think it's... 30? No, you're 30 to, I mean, I guess 40 now. Really? Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, I think the cutoff was 1979. Okay. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean... Google that at home. Oh, my God, yes. We don't know. Yeah. Yeah. But I I, I think that there's, there's sort of millennials fit into two buckets, and our customer is sort of the one that's either cohabitating with their significant other and or getting married and or thinking about having a family um and so that's when millennials transition from it would appear because we don't have that much data but it would appear that that's when millennials transition from makeup and fashion into makeup fashion fitness actually into uh starting to nest starting to think about recreating their spaces and so that's sort of so. I'm going to say 30 to 45 to 55 okay. Okay. in that kind of space, right? Um, because the interesting thing is behaviorally as well. Some of the uh, empty nesters are behaving in the same way that millennials are. So downsizing, smaller spaces, much more nomadic, traveling, experiential, spending their money on different things. You know, their kids are no longer home, so it's travel and restaurants and wellness and a whole different subset of things. And so there, there tends to be some similarities between both groups. And so it's sort of going after that. Okay. And so you feel that a lot of the millennials have already sort of made this transition and, and they're back to being focused on home again. No, I think they're nesting. starting. I think they're starting to. They're starting to. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And so so. The, the millennials on the older end of the spectrum are mm-hmm. starting to, are starting to think about, because once you... I mean, so we've, you know, this is like my small data subset, but we've talked to a lot of people and they want to invest in furniture once they've decided to cohabitate with their significant other. So once it's not your roommate, people don't make more significant purchases when it's in a roommate scenario. So once you're sort of post that roommate scenario, it's either your amazing place yourself and or you and your significant other, that's when people start to make furniture decisions. It would appear, okay, from what I'm learning, right. that they don't do that before then. Yes, okay. So, and that that makes sense because it's cons- con- like completely consistent with my behavior. Sure. So, so and and are there are there things that you're preparing for, knowing that this is the trend that's coming? What are you, what do you have your eye towards? Well, I think the market is preparing for it, right? Yes. The market's preparing for home ownership and. You know, this is this is like the frothy category now. Yeah. Um, and so they're preparing for, and then the next wave of the next sort of mini baby boom, right? After coming off of the the sheer number of millennials. Um, so I think that those categories, it's funny that the cycles, but I think those categories are going to become viable again in a very different way, though. So it's going to be ease and the drop ship and price point and design. So millennials are used to getting a uh, five-star experience at a three-star price. And so, right. I mean, digitally online, we're, we're used to getting things inexpensively. And so I think we have to, 
we have to, we're going to have to, all of us, anybody who's in commerce in any way is going to have to deliver on that premise. So we were talking at the beginning of the conversation about the fact that we are actually starting to feel like we're coming out of the lengthy recession that we've all had to endure. Stock market had a great year last year. There's all this data showing that people are taking massive amounts of home equity loans again and and that remodeling uh, money is being spent. Responsibly, I hope. Yeah, uh, Yeah. well, we hope. Yes. Uh, A a little little disturbing that much of that money sounded like it was going into cryptocurrencies and other investments. But, But certainly people sound like they're like they're spending money Again, I think there's there's starting. It feels like there's like a, a starting to be some optimism. And is that going to show up in in home design in ways that it has traditionally? Are, are people going to start to decorate in a more opulent fashion, a more maximalist fashion? Hmm. Is brown furniture going to resurge or chocolate is back? Yes. Um, no, I, I, <laughs> in upholstery. Yeah. Um, you know, that's a really interesting question. I I think about this often because even when you know the the spigot is turned on and the money is flowing in a better way than it has I think people are thinking about their spaces in a different way. I think people would rather have and this is my thesis a smaller space that they absolutely love and that have the flexibility to do a lot of other things rather than invest all of their dollars in their home and 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 then feel like they have to be there. I mean, I think, you know, people, the travel industry, the, the data is showing that people just want to travel more. They want to Booming. eat more. Yeah. yeah. They want to experience more. Mm-hmm. They want to. And so that's how they're spending their dollar. So I imagine that it gets resorted where people are favoring smaller spaces that are exactly what they want and then using dollars elsewhere versus a, a huge. I mean, the thing about a huge house is you have to furnish a huge house. Yes. So... I mean, I'm sure that I'm sure that it's all going to be there, but I think that the sort of target market that I'm after, that is this kind of first home, first nester, may may rent mm-hmm. or may own, but I don't think it's going to be. I don't think they're going to be spending all of their dollars uh, on home. So you spoke earlier about this book that you are working on, the the death of the office. <laughs> the death of the, the office. Yes. <laughs> it was tentatively called. Yes, it's tentatively called <laughs> live work. Live because, work. Yes, because okay. because we are oftentimes living and working in the same space, and there are people that have incredibly interesting, creative ways of living and working in the same space. So the the reason I ask about it in in part is because one of the one of the things that people in the modern furniture business will often say to me is that the the office world is spilling over finally into into home and that's bringing modern furniture the united states has been very slow to, to adapt modern furniture as a as yes. a, a style right yes. it's still a very small percentage of the overall sales of of furniture and i i wonder if you see that growing I mean, I would th- I, I think it's probably flip-flopped online because I think online in the sort of digital space, that kind of modern modular furniture has done very, very well. So you're right. I mean, the sort of transitional traditional is the heart of the American aesthetic. Um, but I, I see that changing because, because you're right. There's dual function in, in spaces now. Yes. So there is this modularity. There is this kind of some of it is an office-y that starting to sort of migrate into people's homes as they as they live differently. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, William Sonoma Group talks about the fact that while Pottery Barn is still our largest brand right now, they absolutely see West Elm becoming their largest brand in the next few years. Yes, that makes well, that makes sense aesthetically and price point wise and then ease of just transaction. Yeah. Yeah, well, it's it'll be interesting to see. We mentioned about DWR earlier. I mean, I'm I'm always feeling as if they are just on the cusp of of sort of setting a national trend. But it, I go to North Carolina, and it's still not uh, a modern furniture fair by any means. But you go to Europe uh, at any of the large furniture fairs, and it's all contemporary. There's it's all contemporary. Nothing traditional. Nothing that looks even remotely like most of what we show here in the, in the US. And I just wonder with your fast fashion pieces if they will be have a much more modern bent to them or I I, mean, I think I, I think what I love about fashion is that you can address a lot of different aesthetics. I think 
for me, it's it's the digital thing is so much about the customer experience. It's so much about making it less, making it fun again. Um, because so much, so many sort of categories got onerous. Like I think about what, you know, the whole mattress industry was completely upended, um, whether it's Casper or Tuft and Needle. Because who really wanted to go into a mattress store? No one. And yeah. so the fact that it can arrive at your home, be of excellent quality, you roll it out and you never have to do anything beyond that is revolutionary and i think people are getting that in groceries they're getting in mattresses they're getting it in i mean they're getting it in almost all categories and they're expecting the same kind of experience from us as trade and as uh retailers of home furnishings yes yes and they do have that expectation and they with, do. and with technology making it so much easier are you employing any of the new uh, 3d rendering technologies absolutely into, okay. yes so you know one of the that's one of the one of the things that we lean on very heavily we 3d model everything we use that for all of the uh, we use that for all of the imagery on the site and i i also think it's part of the toolbox because the ar vr thing is is going to happen it's happening now um, and so the ability to have your entire inventory, you know, camera ready, 3D ready, VR ready is, I think, very important for anybody who's in this business, retail and or wholesale. Yes. Frankly, like I think it's a very big part of it because it gets around, it solves for some of the problems in home furnishings, which are expensive photography over and over and over again. So you can repurpose these things in a way that's very efficient. I think... The incredible technology that, that's coming online today, the 3D rendering technology, I think that's going to be one of the most transformational uh, because think about technologies it, yeah, high -end to architects, change the furniture industry. They've been doing yeah. it for a long time. So now you'll be able to you'll be able to virtually walk through your space and see yes. what you're thinking about putting in there, in there. I mean, I, yeah. that's not very far away at all. Um, I wanted to touch briefly, uh, not, not on your children and your family, unless you want to tell us <laughs> anything about your children and your family. Um, although I know that you've actually sort of made, made a point throughout your career to sort of keep that very separate, uh, which I, I have, which yes. I ad admire that you've yes. done mm -hmm. that. And I, I, have, I just, I think you have lovely children. It would have been easy to slot them into it would have been all, very easy. all sorts of promotional mm -hmm. materials, but you made a conscious decision not to, very not conscious. to do that. Mm -hmm. Yes. I mean, because, you know, we all know the digital, the digital world is a digital world. And once it's out there, it's out there. Right. I mean, and so I want my, you know, I want my kids to paint their own canvas. I don't, right. I'm not going to, I'm not going to put that on them. And I think there's a lot of pressure. So I, 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 I've been so unbelievably careful not to use my children and my family as part of my business story because I want them to write their own story. Right. Well, I, I admire that. Um, another thing that I admire about you is that I know you're on the board of directors for a charitable organization. Yes. Perhaps you can tell us a little I'm, bit about that. I'm on the board of directors uh, of Every Mother Counts. Yes. Um, and it's bringing maternal health to, uh, to countries uh, that are in desperate need of it. And, you know, it's funny when, when Christy Turlington Burns, the, uh, the CEO and founder of, of Every Mother Counts, asked me to, to do this. Um, I was thrilled because a lot of the countries that we work in are countries that I've manufactured in. And so for me, it was sort of a, it was, it was a closing of the circle. So being able to give back to communities in Bangladesh or India or Haiti, where we've actually manufactured, is, is so important to me. So um, that has just been, I mean, the most incredible experience. But also, just it just feels like the right thing to do. It feels right, um, given that I've worked in a lot of these countries for so long. Yeah. Well, I think that's, I think that's fantastic. And the, and the charity does tremendous work. And how long have you been... Uh, on the on the board of directors, there. I've been on the board of directors for five years. Okay, good for you. Yeah. Um, and you and you travel a great deal yourself. That was one of the things as I was looking at all of the many projects that you have up in the air at any given time. Yes, I was amazed that you could do all of that, juggle your family obligations and and your business obligations, and you're you're traveling quite. I was, I've a got it down to a science. So yes, um, it's I, my travel is the in and the out. Okay. So I often go in the morning and come home at night. Um, I used to be able to travel for for longer periods of time, but um, my kids are at the age now where it's not just you know getting them from one class to the other or logistics. It's I'm in the heavy parenting, so I try not to travel 
Um, and I have a feeling okay. I'll be, my wings, I'll be grounded for about five years while I really, um, while I really, you know, spend very serious quality time as a parent. Okay. So um, I'm traveling a little bit this month, but I would say that I've tapered it off over the last three years considerably. All right. Well, I so appreciate having you on the show. My guest today has been Christian Lemieux, founder and CEO of The Inside. You can find us on iTunes. The show is Business of Home, and I'm Dennis Scully. If you like what you hear, please feel free to subscribe, and most of all, leave us a review on iTunes. That really helps build our awareness. This show is produced every week by Editor-at-Large. You can find us at editoratlarge.com on Facebook or Instagram. Thanks again to our producer, Taylor Barker. We'll see you next week. Mm -hmm.